0: Tensions between Russia and Ukraine remain high as diplomacy is at a temporary impasse. NATO prepares to render cyber assistance to Ukraine. An unspecified cyber attack affects gasoline distribution in Germany. The White Tour threat group borrows heavily from several APTs, but itself remains mysterious. Charming Kitten gets some new claws. Caleb Barlow on Harvard's analysis of Equifax. Our guest is Gunter Ullman from Devo discussing their third annual SOC performance report. And the TrickBot gang seems to be privateering in that old, familiar way. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine is, for now at any rate, at an impasse, with diplomacy between the two sides not advancing. Russia continues to position itself as the aggrieved party, Ukraine as dangerous, and NATO as misled by American bad faith. In the meantime, Ukraine digs in and NATO prepares for an escalation of hybrid conflict that is expected to prominently feature cyber operations. NATO is consulting with Ukraine. Russia is consulting with Belarus, as China stands by, as a more or less sympathetic observer. U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor for Cybersecurity and Emerging Technologies Anne Neuberger is conferring with NATO policymakers in the North Atlantic Council, after which she'll visit her counterparts in Poland. The Wall Street Journal reports that NATO is working toward a significant package of cybersecurity aid for Ukraine, and the New York Times characterizes Newberger's mission as largely focused on how to coordinate a NATO response should Russia again attack parts of the power grid in Ukraine or take out communications in an effort to destabilize the government of President Volodymyr Zelensky, End quote. The Times quotes an unnamed senior U.S. official to the effect that U.S. believes Russia is interested in replacing the government in Kiev with a friendly one, that is, one more like the regime in Belarus. Quote, if Putin could accomplish that without occupying the country and sparking an insurgency, that would be his best option, End quote. And attacks on infrastructure, especially on Ukraine's power grid, could prove to be, from the Russian point of view, agreeably destabilizing. Ukraine has, for its part, continued to seek close collaboration with NATO on cybersecurity. While NATO turned down Ukraine's request last year for a formal association with the tallinn based Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, Defense News reports that Estonia in particular has cooperated closely with Ukraine and continued to advocate for Kiev with Estonia's NATO partners. The Estonian Ministry of Defense wrote in a statement last week, quote, the parties discussed the organization and overall state of Ukraine's national cybersecurity, including the recent large-scale cyber attacks against Ukraine and their impact on the current security situation, end quote. Margus Matt, undersecretary of Cyber Matters at the ministry, added, quote, Estonia is ready to send cyber specialists to Ukraine to further develop this exchange. By supporting Ukraine, we are also strengthening our own defense posture, end quote. It's possible for countries who aren't NATO members to become contributing participants in the CCDCOE. Austria, Switzerland, Sweden and Finland presently enjoy that status. The center's director, Estonian Air Force Colonel Jok Tarian, told Defense News that, quote, "...right now the CCDCOE is mapping out new possible cooperation areas with Ukraine, since Ukraine has unique experience in combating hybrid threats." Sharing it will help to improve both the knowledge and readiness to face such threats in each member state of CCDCOE individually and in NATO as a whole." The cyber threat doesn't run entirely in one direction, and while the open letter from the Congress of Russian Intellectuals is a protest, there's a possibility that other dissenters could move to hacktivism. In addition to the prospect of NATO retaliatory or preemptive cyber operations, hacktivists could begin to hit Russian targets. The Moscow Times looks at the recent disruption of Belarusian rail transport by the cyber-partisans and speculates that similar hacktivism might also surface in Russia. Gabriella Coleman, professor of anthropology at Harvard University and author of two books on computer hacking, told the Moscow Times, quote, The BCP have been so spectacular and effective that I could definitely see a few other groups popping up in the region. The number of hacktivist groups, activists who use technology to affect social change, has been on the rise across Russia in the last few years, and with brutal crackdowns on public protests sweeping across the post-Soviet region, cyberspace may be the safest place for collective discord. There are dissenting voices within Russia itself, although it's not clear how much of the Russian populace they represent. More than 2,000 members of the Congress of Russian Intellectuals, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty Reports, signed an open letter Sunday in which they decried the threat of military action against Ukraine as immoral and denounced any such war as tragic and unjustifiable. Gabriela Coleman added in her conversation with the Moscow Times, quote, In Russia, there is clearly a highly trained technical class of people— And there is disaffection, so you would expect to find at least a small pocket of hacktivism." While, so far, Russian cyber operations against Ukraine have been relatively closely confined to their intended targets, the malware used in the Whispergate pseudo-ransomware lacked the worming capabilities that enabled NotPetya to spread so quickly beyond its initial Ukrainian infestations, well, that could change. CyberDive and others recount the potential threat future operations could pose to Western businesses, and those businesses would do well to inspect their insurance coverage. Exceptions for acts of war and other acts of states made it difficult for many of them to recover damages they sustained from NotPetya in 2017. We read yesterday in the German business publication Handelsblatt that the gasoline distribution firm Oil Tanking and Mabanoft Group, an energy company, have come under an unspecified cyber attack that they're working to resolve. Both companies are subsidiaries of Marcard and Balls, and Bleeping Computer suggests that they may have been infected through their parent organization. Computing reports that the incident has taken the automated systems responsible for filling and emptying its fuel storage tanks offline at 13 facilities in Germany that between them handle about 155 million tons of material every year. The filling of petrol tankers is being held up as a result. Mabinoft has declared force majeure at the oil terminals it operates in Germany. Officials downplay the seriousness of the disruptions, which they say have not had a major effect on German fuel supplies. There's no attribution yet as to who's responsible for the attack, and so there's no consensus either as to whether it's a criminal caper or a state directed act of cyber espionage. PWC describes a hitherto unknown threat actor they're calling White Tour, and the white in PWC's naming convention means that the researchers haven't yet associated the actor with any particular geographical area. PWC's study of the group began with the investigation in January 2021 of a phishing campaign. White Tour is unusual in that it seems to have borrowed tactics, techniques, procedures, and code from a range of unrelated advanced persistent threats. Its only distinctive feature is its victimology. It prospects defense, government, and research organizations in Serbia. But PwC is unable to discern any unifying motive that would point to a particular threat group. Cyber Reason says the Iranian threat group Phosphorus, also called APT35 and Charming Kitten, has increased its activity and shown new capabilities, including highly modular malware and a novel PowerShell backdoor, being called Powerless Backdoor, that evades detection by running a .NET application without launching the telltale PowerShell.exe. It's also using open-source tools and publicly available exploits. Cyber Reason finds that some of Charming Kitten's indicators of compromise overlap those associated with the Memento ransomware operation. Wired has an account of the internal chatter of the TrickBot gang. It does indeed seem to operate like a business, and while it was briefly disrupted last October by U.S. Cyber Command, it's back and operating from Russia – with the familiar impunity Moscow confers its privateers. And finally, happy Groundhog Day. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reports that Puxatawney Phil emerged from his tree stump on Gobbler's Knob, saw his shadow, and predicted six more weeks of winter. Sadly, the town of Milton, New Jersey, reports their own groundhog, Milton Mel, passed away just days ago, leaving locals scrambling to find a suitable rodent replacement. Who knew there's no such thing as a strategic groundhog reserve? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Six Cents. Data and security analytics company Devo recently released results from their third annual SOC performance report. Gunter Ullman is chief security officer at Devo. One of the challenges he sees from the report is getting leadership
1: and SOC analysts on the same page. Well, I I think the leaders are much more positive about uh, how things are going, You know, about uh, uh, feeling much more positive about the value that SOC brings to business, uh, much more positive. Feels much stronger that uh, they're bringing new value to the business, that they're solving business problems, uh, and that their uh, their analysts are on form and delivering what the business requires. Meanwhile, the guys and the guys and girls in the trenches are you know feeling swamped. You know uh, alert fatigue, posture fatigue, policy fatigue. Uh, they're up against the grind, They they feel swamped by the number of tools, the technologies, uh, and uh, they feel year on year less like they are contributing positively to to their organizations. And what do you suppose is is causing that mismatch? There is there a is there a lack of communication between the two groups? Yeah, there's clearly a lack of communication. And certainly, if you ask those folks in the trenches about uh, how, you know, how leadership is communicating what they're delivering and, uh, and uh, how leadership understands what the day to day operation, that gap is broadening. And, 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 you know, and so communication is key there. And I think, you know, the other direction as well that, uh, um, maybe those leaders have a little bit of a, you know, Rose-tinted glasses view of, uh, of what it's like to now sit in front of those screens and uh, respond to respond to threats.
0: In terms of the SOC analysts themselves, can you give us some insights as to what is the spectrum between the the haves and the have-nots in terms of the the tools and the resources they have available to them?
1: I, I think one thing to sort of look at is, and it comes out in the report that you know seventy percent of those folks at the coalface. State that working in the SOC is painful, right? Uh, and that that pain affects their recruitment, their attention, you know, and the the burnout is you know, in, in, you know, increasingly a problem. I think one of the one that that is pretty scary uh, in this, you know, and it applies to both the high performing and low performing uh, teams. And that is sixty three percent of the respondents have uh, said they considered changing careers and leaving the job. You know, and all this report was done September time, I would bet a dollar that uh, those SOC teams that managed through the, the Log4j work over Christmas, I would say that you know, many more have been reconsidering their careers and leaving jobs.
0: What do you suppose they need then? How, how do we move the needle here and, and make it so that they're, they have the tools they need and they're more satisfied with the, the job that they're
1: doing? But one piece of the pieces of feedback is that um, from the field, uh, sorry, from from the, uh, from the trenches is there's too many tools, right? Uh, swamped with mm. information, too many tools, too many th- new things to learn. Uh, and, uh, you know, if that's the problem statement, I, I think the, the other side of this is um, they're looking for the integrations, the actual real application, machine learning, and artificial intelligence uh, to deal with both the, the drudgery uh, of uh, SOC response uh, but also just, you know, the, the, the triaging, the, uh, the case management tools, but bringing it all together into, you know, I, I would hate to use the term suite, but, but effectively, how do you bring all these disparate technologies, different tools uh, into a single flow for uh, response and um, mitigation?
0: For the, the high functioning SOCs, what, what are the common elements there, the, the ones who are doing well?
1: Well, I think some of the problems, you know, shared problems between both the leadership and uh, you know the the operations teams. There, I think the ones that they sort of highlighted were you know information overload and the attack surface visibility uh, has been you know a shared sort of problem. And I think the attack surface visibility you know, and the management of that has become probably one of the more critical elements of you know modern SOC operations and protection within uh, sort enterprise. Uh, as you know, cloud expands, and the, the tools and technologies that you know every worker is now using um, requires so many new degrees of specialization. So I think that has contributed to information overload uh, and um, you know new alerts and new tool creep. The other one where that was highlighted was really about the turf or silo issues between the IT operations uh, and SOC. Right, so who actually owns some of these things? Whether it's the the data, the retention, the policy compliance of uh, of these uh, alerts, for example, uh, through to um, you know who's responsible for actually responding for a different tiered? Uh, is it a security event? Is it a policy violation? So I think that's a key part. And the last one, you know, on shared problems has been the whole um, aspect of. Compliance with data privacy and data protection requirements um, has uh, crimped the ability for many of these SOC teams and SOC analysts to understand, investigate, uh, and provide speedy remediation to to attacks. So those were sort of shared problems between those leaders and and the trenches for those high-performing teams.
0: That's Gunter Ullman, Chief Security Officer at Devo. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Caleb Barlow. Caleb, always great to have you back on the show Uh, There was a recent study that was released from the folks at Harvard, and they were looking at the Equifax case. I want to dig in with that with you. There's some interesting things in this
2: report, yes? Well, it's not even a report. It's actually a Harvard business study, you know, a case study Hmm. that they use in teaching class. And it's a whopping $8.95 if you buy it on Amazon. Well, this is an incredibly powerful tool that I think most people don't realize is out there. So, you know, the team at Harvard basically took the time like they do with all of these cases to go do an intensive study of the Equifax breach. They write up a case. And then when they teach these things at Harvard Business School, they present the case and the students have to discuss it and decide, you know, what would they do in this situation? Now, I've had the opportunity to sit in on this at Harvard multiple times as kind of an outside expert when they discuss this case. And it's a really fascinating case study that you can even use in your own executive team or if you're doing cyber education. First of all, not only is it inexpensive, but it's not what you think is gonna happen. So when, you know, most people hear Equifax, Dave, they kind of look at it and go, oh yeah, well that was, you know, a bunch of idiots that made a bunch of dumb decisions. Mm -hmm. But when you read the case, you come back with a whole different opinion. Because the hmm. case is walking through, what do these executives know and when do they know it? And you suddenly look at it and you scratch your head going, yeah, I could see how they made that decision. Yeah, maybe my company would make the same decision. And then you suddenly start to realize that what they were missing might have been a little different than what you thought. Can you give
0: us an example here? What are, what are some of the things that, that stood out to you?
2: Well, I think when most people hear about Equifax and what we saw in the news, you know, of course, this thing is predicated by the fact that you had some insider trading and, you know, just a a bunch of big screw-ups in the process of response. But the reality is, when you look at it, a lot of the tools and capabilities were in place, like many other companies. In fact, you know, what I've seen classes end up with at the end of the discussion, after talking about this for an hour, is really a conclusion that— Maybe this wasn't so much a lack of preparation for preventing a breach, but maybe it was more about a lack of preparation of how to respond when one was breached, having those runbooks in place, exercising them, and making sure that was communicated well in the organization. You know, unfortunately, this is a great example of where, you know, a siloed management team was making independent decisions without looking at the bigger picture and these are the types of things we all need to learn. So it's a great way to kind of get across that point and have a little bit of fun in discussing a case study. Hmm, interesting. So this is available on Amazon? Yeah, it's available on Amazon. Like I said, it's literally $8.95. You can probably also pay a whole lot more and go to Harvard and have this come up in a class. Um, right. I, th- I think they teach it about once a year, They've also got one out there in the target study, uh, you know, target case study, which of course is a little more dated, but it's just a really cool tool because again, it's one of those things that puts you in the seat of that executive to really go, hmm, based on what they knew, would you have made the same call? And what do you think they could have done differently? And these are great ways for everybody to learn.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: All right, well, Kayla
0: Barlow, thanks for joining us. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
1: To share your feedback now.
0: And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cybercriminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up.